Uh, thank you, Sophie. Um, good evening, everyone. And I know this is said a billion times, but really, welcome back, students. Are you in the house? Yes, okay. Um, as mentioned, my name's Logan. I've been uh, attending here for about a year. Obviously, as you can tell from my vulgar accent that I'm not from here. Uh, anyone want to guess what state I'm from? California, correct. Um, so, um, unfortunately, this is the last time I will get to speak in this capacity at this church, most likely because I'm leaving in a month. And I'm moving to a land far eastward, um, which um, is a different thing. But uh, I, I have loved um, being a part of this congregation, and it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to speak on this very, very uh, terrifying passage uh, called John 3, which we're going to look at today. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that. So we're going to look at John 3, 1 through 16. Uh, there's a verse right at the end, which you'll probably be familiar with, um, and we're going to read it. I can't read from there, and I didn't uh, put the text on my uh, paper here, so I'm going to read it from my phone. Do we have it up? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, so, John 3, from verse 1 to 16. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, here's a bit of a tough question. Uh, what does love look like? So if I asked you what was one of the most tangible acts of love that you've ever experienced or have experienced recently, what comes to mind? And what characterizes that act or experience of love? That is, what about that experience made you know that it was love that you were encountering in that moment? 
Uh, was it the extravagance of the act, the affection, the empathy, the kindness, the patience? What made that experience that you may be thinking of love to you? And to make this question even harder, what does God's love look like? Now, it's really easy to like speak about God's love in like churchy and Christian spaces, right? Like, yay, God loves you. That's like a really core tenet of Christianity. Um, but what does that like actually look like in our lives? And what does that actually look like in human history? Um, and even if we are able to answer that question, what does God's love look like? It raises a further question. How can we actually encounter that love? Even if we define or articulate what God's love is in some technical sense, how do we touch it? How do we receive it? How do we live in it? How do we access the love of God? So those are uh, on the screen. The two questions that I want to think about with this passage. What does God's love look like? And how do we encounter it? So, uh, what I'm going to do in this uh, sermon are two things. So first, I'm going to run through like what is happening in this really weird dialogue that Nicodemus and Jesus are having, this super cryptic, like weird back and forth they're having. I'm going to nickname them for the purposes of the sermon, Joshy Boy and Nico. Um, Joshy Boy, of course, being uh, Jesus. Um, and so we're, I'm going to kind of like do an, a bird's eye view of, of this really weird uh, conversation that they're having. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to zero in on verses 15 and 16 about the whole like serpent being lifted up and God sending his son and the son of man being lifted up and like all that kind of uh, stuff. So those two things, we're going to do overview of the passage and then we're going to focus in on those two verses while thinking about the questions, what does God's love look like and how do we encounter it? So, Nicodemus, or your boy Nico, as I like to call him. Uh, this dude was apparently both a Pharisee and a political ruler of the Jews. Not a very uh, common combination in the first century. Uh, so this dude was not only really smart, really trained in his tradition, knew the Torah very, very well, but he also uh, had a lot of political power. And he probably hears about some of the rave and murmuring about Jesus that's going on, going on around in, in Israel at the time. So he's like, hmm, I've, I should probably meet this guy, you know? Like, I think I'm a cool teacher. I'm pretty politically powerful. This guy's gaining some popularity. I should probably know who he is. He seems legit, so let's have a meetup. Um, so Nicodemus comes all up in here, and he's like, yo, dude, you seem legit. What's cracking? You're like a teacher of his, you're like, you know, a cool teacher. You do some cool signs. Awesome. And Jesus's response is to like straight up troll him, which is very confusing, right? Like Nicodemus is like, hey, dude, you're really cool. And Jesus is like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Like this is a really how is that? The, not even like a thank you or like a hi, I'm Joshy boy too. What's up, Nico? Just like a truly, truly. Um, try that next time you meet someone who flatters you and like see how that goes. Probably not very good. So with Jesus's response, like this has now turned into something else. Like this ain't no like late night coffee shop chit chat with your boy Nico. This is now like they're in a disagreement. They're in like some kind of conflict. Jesus is challenging his understanding of some things 
uh, and Nico gets kind of confused. So um, Jesus says this, you know, unless you're born again, uh, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus laughs it off, and he's like, what are you chatting right now? Born again? I can't, like, crawl into my mom's womb and be born again. Like, Jesus, you're really not all that that you're made out to be, are you? Uh, And Jesus' response is, of course, about to, he's about to absolutely show him what's up. So he responds with some, like, further cryptic things about, like, that which is born of flesh, and that which is born of spirit, of spirit, and all that stuff. And I'm not going to get into the details, but I am going to summarize a bit what this conversation is about. Now, you've probably heard something about, like, the language of being born again, right? Yes? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, now, usually the, in, in, in various modern Christian contexts, that's used to talk about, like, conversion. Um, but I don't actually think that uh, your boy Nico and Joshy boy are having a debate or a discussion about conversion. Uh, they're having a discussion about something that's, like, far more intense. Uh, and I'm just going to break it down to explain what this disagreement is about that they're having. So when Jesus speaks of seeing or entering the kingdom of God. He's not talking about leaving this earth and flying away to heaven to like, you know, become some ghost in a celestial realm. Not like this. This is called the ghost of disapproval, by the way. Um, so he's, he's, he, what he's talking about is who will be there when God brings heaven down to earth? Because one day, as Isaiah prophesied, God will make a new heavens, and a new earth. He will remake all things. And when this happens, heaven will descend to earth, and heaven and earth will be one. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will swallow up death forever, and he will instill in all of creation his own life-giving breath and power so that decay, death, corruption, and sin will be no more. That is the kingdom of God. But right now, you and I and every other human being that has, has existed or is existing except the risen Lord himself is made of weak, vulnerable, decaying, susceptible to sin flesh. And as vulnerable creatures, we are susceptible to mistakes, to error, to sin, and to the forces of evil. We're susceptible to illness. We're susceptible to death. We are susceptible and vulnerable to all sorts of bad things that exist in this world. These bodies that we have, therefore, are not fit for the kind of incredible life and power and goodness of the age to come. Now, that doesn't mean that what we need is to escape bodies altogether. But we do need a different kind of body to withstand that much of God's goodness that's going to exist in the kingdom of God, to withstand the utter realness of that world, of what that world is going to be. We must be made of a material, be made of a kind of stuff that is made and empowered by God's own life-giving power and his life-giving breath. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, in order to see the kingdom of God, that is what human beings ultimately need. Ultimately, they need 
resurrection, and they need to be given a kind of body that has the perpetual life of God's own life-giving breath. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, and you must be born of the Spirit, he's talking about resurrected bodies of human beings that need to exist in order to withstand the power and the life of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to communicate this to Nicodemus, but it all sounds way too radical for him. And so Nico asks, how can these things be? And what he means by that is, how is it that humans are going to receive that kind of invulnerable life from the living God himself? How is it that creatures like us, dusty, decaying, disconnected, porous, vulnerable human beings, are going to be born again and have bodies that are imbibed with God's own life-giving breath? How can those things be? And what follows in the rest of the passage is Jesus' response to Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? And his answer is that it has everything to do with the love of God. God's love, Jesus will tell us, is the reason that he is committed to transforming all of creation into a Uh, into a world in which there is no decay, there is no corruption, there is no sin, and all things are filled with God's own life. So, on to uh, 3.15 and 16. Uh, So we're going to specifically look at these verses uh, for a little bit, because there's a a lot here, and I want to take it very, very slowly, uh, because this is very, very rich. Um, So, Jesus' explanation um, about, uh, in 3.15 and 16 is, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, many of us of course, are familiar with this second verse, right? It's like the thesis statement of Christianity. It's like the first Bible verse that people learn in Sunday school. I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't grow up as a Christian, so I don't really know if that's true. But I presume many of you, this was like, you know, the verse that's like plastered on people's bumper stickers and like whatever and people, you know, all those kinds of things. Like people hear this verse as like the first verse they've ever heard from the Bible or something like that. But I want to suggest that this verse, John 3.16, cannot be understood without the previous verse. You can't understand John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and so on and so forth, without understanding first John 3.15. In order to understand what God's love looks like, then, we have to understand some weird stuff about, like, a snake being lifted up. Okay, so now permit me to be like really nerdy and really specific right now because there's something about the language of this passage here that I would like to point out that's actually really important for understanding the passage but is obscured by our English translations. So this word, for God so loved the world, is often understood as referring to a degree of God's love, right? God loved the world so much. He loved the world to such a degree that he gave his only son. Um, But um, I and a a number of other um, 
New Testament scholars would suggest that actually this word means something crucially different. It doesn't mean God loved the world so much. It rather means God loved the world in this way. And more crucially, the this way that God loves the world is pointing backwards to the phrase, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So if we compress the phrase, it means something like this, which is a bit confusing. Uh, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that is how God loved the world. Um, What? (laughs) What is loving about Moses lifting up a serpent in in the wilderness? And also, like, what is that talking about anyways? Um, But what's really crucial is that John 3.16 tells you something about the love of God by pointing back to some other story that's alluded to in John 3.15. And thus, in order to understand John 3.15, we have to go back to that story to which it is alluding. So, um, there's this passage that's going to appear. John 3.15 is referring to this passage in Numbers 21, Um, where Moses does precisely this. Um, So, Numbers 21, 5 through 9. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Right, so this is after Israel is... Uh, escapes from Egypt and is wandering in the wilderness, they get really annoyed uh, at Moses because they're uh, basically hangry. Um, And of course, uh, in a really chill turn of events, the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look up at the serpent of bronze and live. Okay, what is happening here? Well, obviously a lot, uh, but I want to point out one absolutely crucial thing about this. Israel is being punished with snakes. And when God prescribes the solution to this problem, he tells them to look at a snake. So he says, right, make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. And then people do that. They get bitten, and then they look at the serpent, and they live. The key point that Jesus is drawing on here is that the form of suffering becomes the means of redemption from that suffering. Uh, To resolve the problem of the snakes, they must look up at a snake. The form of suffering becomes the means of redemption. So when John 3.16 says that God loved the world in that way, he's saying that God loved the world in the same way that he loved Israel in the wilderness in Numbers 21. 
when he enabled them to escape their suffering and punishment by using the source of their suffering as a means of redemption from it. How God loved Israel then is how God loved the whole world. Now, as mentioned, we are decaying, vulnerable creatures who are susceptible to the forces of death. How do we get out of this situation? How is it going to be the case that we receive the eternal and perpetual life of the kingdom of God when heaven comes to earth and all things are imbibed with God's life-giving power? How is that going to happen? God has provided a solution. And this solution is to send his only son to take on our suffering, our vulnerability, our weakness, and our death, and ultimately to be crucified so as to overcome the power of death. Because in his crucifixion, what happens is that Jesus lets himself be attacked by all of the forces of death. All of the evil forces in existence use all they have to destroy him until they expend all of their power, and their power is thus extinguished. They have nothing left. And in this way, God has used our suffering in death as a means of redemption from the power of death. Jesus has conquered death by death in the same way that the Israelites were saved from poisonous snakes by looking up at a snake. In the cross, our form of suffering becomes a means of redemption from our suffering. That is how God loved the world. So, what does God's love look like? It looks like this. It looks like God sending his son to die. It looks like the son of God taking on human weakness. It looks like Jesus descending into the depths of our pain, our vulnerability, ultimately to die a horrific death of crucifixion. And in this way, God's love looks like Jesus. And this is really good news for us because it means that whatever aspects of pain, suffering, and the powers of death that we experience in this life, Jesus knows them. God himself knows them. And he doesn't just know about them factually, not like a, yeah, I see your pain from afar and I know that it exists, you know, that's cool. Um, he doesn't just know about them factually, he knows about them experientially. If you feel weak, if you feel vulnerable, the Son of God has felt what you feel. This love of God is not distance, distant, it's an empathetic love that knows our pain in a first-hand way. But, on to the second question, how do we actually encounter that love? Well, I think we can think again with the numbers passage here. How was someone supposed to escape the suffering of the snakes? All they had to do was to look up at the snake. And whoever looked up would live, even if they were bitten and they were going to die. If they looked up at that snake, they would live. 
the power of the, cur- the curse of those snakes would be extinguished. And so it is with the love of God in Jesus. Anyone who believes in him, anyone who looks up at him, will not perish, but have eternal life, the life of the kingdom of God in the world to come. Anyone who just looks up for help from him will experience the powerful love that overcomes the forces of death. And so to encounter the love of God, all we need to do is look up, trust, have faith, and look up at the crucified Jesus and say, I need you, help. And that is all one needs to encounter this love that overcomes the power of death. Now, when we trust and encounter the love of God in this way, this doesn't mean that our struggles will go away. It doesn't mean that we won't experience pain and vulnerability and the forces of death and weakness in our own life. But it does mean that those experiences uh, are had in the context of hope. The hope for a new heavens and a new earth. The hope for being made alive with God's own life-giving breath. Jesus was raised from the dead after he defeated death by his crucifixion. And those who encounter this love of God will be raised in the same way on the other side of death. That doesn't make our pain and suffering now any less real, but it does mean that the forces of sin and death don't have the last word. God's love has the last word. And if we want to receive that death-defeating, life-giving hope of that love, all we need to do is look up. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for loving us creatively and giving us a solution to the problem in the power of death. I pray that you would give us the faith to look up, to trust in you and in your love in sending your son. And I pray that as we experience the trials and pain and suffering of this life, we would look forward to the day that you will make all things new. Amen.